Well, hey there. My name is Pastor Tim, and you have found my podcast. I currently serve as the pastor of First United Methodist Church of Fort Pierce, Florida, and I'm so grateful to be able to connect with you in this way. This podcast is a collection of my sermons and teachings that I hope you will use to deepen and strengthen your connection with Jesus Christ so that you might go and transform the world around you. So kick back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode. I started building fires when I was young. Not like illegal fires for once, you know. At my dad's house, we had a fireplace in one of the rooms of our house. And when it was cold in the winter, because we lived up north, we would often use the fireplace. And it was, it was a great pastime for me for, for many different reasons. Uh, it was something that, that I looked forward to because it usually involved some kind of adventure. We'd get in the car and we'd drive around country roads looking for someone that had a sign out in their front yard that said firewood for sale. And then we'd pull into their driveway, strike a deal with whoever was selling the firewood, load it into the trunk of the car, and then take it home. And and sometimes we'd have to split the wood with an axe, which I thought was pretty cool. And, uh, you know, one thing that uh, we had to do no matter what was either go out into our yard and collect all the sticks that had fallen down, or if we had already collected all of the sticks and it was later in the season, we would take a smaller axe or some kind of knife and shave up larger logs into small pieces of wood that we would use to light the rest of the fire on fire. And those small pieces of wood are called kindling. And what they do is they've got lots of surface area, and they light on fire much quicker than a larger log would. And so we would place these smaller pieces of wood called kindling down at the base of our prospective fire and then apply the spark to them, right, The, the match, the fire, to get them started first so that when done properly, even though it took a fair amount of time to collect and shave up this wood, our fire would start fairly easily and would be given the time that it needed for those larger logs to catch on fire and become the fire that we hoped it would be. The fire that I hoped it would be would be one that I could roast marshmallows on because that's what I was in this thing for anyway. But the kindling is often an overlooked step when trying to first learn how to start a fire. Usually because we become overly focused on the big picture, on the big picture. We get overly focused on the fire that we want to see come about. The fire that magnificently engulfs these logs into a beautiful inferno. But every fire has to start small. And when a spark is applied to a small pile of kindling, then that fire is given the ability to do just that, to start. And so we're in week four of our sermon series, How to Start a Fire, 
where we're looking at the book of Acts and how it provides us with all of the elements that were required for the early church to spread like a wildfire across the known world. And the purpose of doing this is for us as a community to see how we are going to use these very same elements to spread our influence across Fort Pierce and beyond. And so today we're, of course, talking about the kindling. What is it that the spark of the Holy Spirit, which we spoke about last week, needed in order for our community, for the, the community of faith in the very beginning of the church story, what is required for communities like ours to turn into a blazing fire of influence for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, I could tell you, or we could read the Bible and find out. And I like to read the Bible, and I hope that you like to read the Bible, so we'll read the Bible and we'll find out. But before we get there, where we left off last week was with the Holy Spirit coming down and giving the disciples, who are now called the apostles, a ton of supernatural gifts. The most famous of them, the ability to speak in languages that they didn't know. And Peter, Peter's this disciple, this guy who is really kind of a dunce for all of Jesus' ministry is somehow now illuminated to give this profound message about salvation through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the fruit of that sermon is that a community is born. A community that is 3,000 people strong. Now, I don't know about you, but 3,000 is a big number by my standards. Like, I wish that I could preach one sermon and have 3,000 people in this sanctuary. You probably don't, because it'd be very packed. I don't know if our air conditioners could keep up with it. But that's besides the point. I can't compare myself to Peter, because Peter walked on water with Jesus. He's got a lot more street cred than I do. But what we have to remember is this is all happening in Jerusalem, in the, the holy city, the center of the Jewish religious world. This is where Jesus told the disciples that their ministry would begin. And so it's no coincidence that this is the place where Jesus' ministry had ended. That's the design of it all. You may remember from uh, a few weeks ago that Jesus said this to the disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so it's here in Jerusalem where this Jesus movement is truly beginning, where this fire is just getting started. It's here where Peter's words are carrying great weight. And there's this massive number of people who are buying what Peter and the rest of the apostles are selling. And Peter is on fire for this mission that he's on. He's like, he's like on an evangelistic crusade throughout the city of Jerusalem. He's, he's preaching to anyone and everyone who will listen to him. He's performing miracles. He's healing people. And he's getting a lot of attention because of it. Just like his teacher did. 
And just like his teacher, not all of the attention that Peter is getting is good. See, those same religious leaders that had a problem with Jesus have a problem with this new movement that's taking place. And Peter and John are actually brought up on charges, but have to be released begrudgingly by those whom have charged them. And because of this, the, the believers, the community, their followers are emboldened, saying, like, look what God is up to. And thus the community is strengthened by this reality. And so shortly after that happens, Luke, the author of the book of Acts, gives us a, a view into what the community of faith was like. So this is Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. It says, Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything that they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses, they sold them and brought the proceeds of whatever was sold. And they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now there was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostles gave Bar the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field that belonged to him, then brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. See, I love this vision of the community because how wonderfully idealistic, right? Certainly seeming to be unrealistic in our modern conventional way of life. Actually, it really sounds like something quite scary to most of us. It sounds like socialism, right? Which probably makes you a little bit uncomfortable. But it's not really helpful to read this passage with our 21st century worldview glasses on. We've got to avoid importing our modern understanding of economic systems into this. What the scripture is doing is it's teaching us a lesson about how the early church operated in the face of an ancient Roman power and wealth structure in which the masses were kept systematically poor by a ruling class of land-owning wealthy citizens. In Rome, there's a massive power imbalance that has no hope of equality, let alone equity. See, money was, as it often is still now, a means of holding and exerting power. Money, when idolized, when misappropriated, and when mishandled, has a way of breeding this thing called greed. And that was what the majority population experienced in the world of Acts in Rome. And the religious structure of Jerusalem was not immune to this reality. In fact, it was often complicit in this way of life. And so what Luke, what the author of Acts wants us to know about the Jesus community is that it was inherently different than that. 
It was radically anti-power hungry. It was countercultural to the point that wealthy land-owning people would sell their rights to that land and turn all of the proceeds over for the common good of the rest of the community. A community that was made up of high-class citizens as well as dirt-poor beggars, orphans, widows, and slaves. And a man named Barnabas, who was a religious elite, a Levite by birth, sold what he had in order to see to the welfare of the rest of the community. See, while all of the rest of the world was telling a tale that in order to have influence, you needed power and money, the Jesus community rejected and renounced their power in order to strengthen the community of faith and unleash the true power, the Pentecost power, the Holy Spirit power, within the Jesus movement. See, what we find is that the spark that came to light the fire of the church, the Holy Spirit, found the perfect kindling when it hit the generosity of the average human heart. Generosity is the kindling that allows the fire of the church to catch and to grow. Generosity is what sets the followers of Jesus apart from the rest of the Roman and even Jewish world at this time. Generosity is what became the beacon call for those around the movement to see that something different was going on here amongst these people in Jerusalem. Generosity became the guiding and defining characteristic of the early church. And it's meant to be the defining and guiding characteristic of the church today. You know, I used to read this passage and think to myself, well, that's really great. So good for them. But that's not feasible in our modern world. And in a way, that's, that's just reality. Our, our world is a bit more complex than it was for these early Jesus followers. We live in an economy and a system that simply doesn't allow us to just go out, cash out all of our accounts, sell our property, give it, and give it all to the church. We'd all be poor and homeless with a nice place to go for one hour on Sunday, right? And the reality is that a lot of things that the church used to do, the government does now. So as Americans, we just couldn't wrap our minds around a generosity quite as radical as the apostles in the early church experienced. But I worked with a population of people for five years who taught me that radical generosity is not a dying relic of the past. I was the pastor of a congregation of Pacific Islanders from the Federated States of Micronesia who lived in the Clearwater area. And these were people who faced a lot of what we just face in our normal American system on a day-to-day basis. But one unique thing about their status in our country is that they are ineligible for a lot of the, the social programs and financial assistance that is available to average impoverished American citizens. And so they had to find other ways to make do. 
They all lived at or around the poverty line. They struggled a lot. But they didn't all struggle at the same time. And so when there was a need in their community, the community would come together to find a solution together. And the solution was always a show of radical generosity. When a family couldn't pay their rent, the community would raise the money to cover it or would take that family into their own home until their economic situation changed. They came together as a community and made sure that every single kid had all of the school supplies that they needed every single year to go back to school. There was no taking care of myself only type of mentality. They were one community, one people, and for all intents and purposes, they had all things in common. One of my first friends in that community was a man named Enster. And about a year after I was there, Enster had a medical emergency and unfortunately passed away. And this would be my first experience of how this community and this culture handled death. And what they did was they would hold about a weeks-long wake period where every single night they would come together to pray and to raise money. Because it was their tradition to be buried back on their native soil. This was a hugely expensive ordeal, but the community would come together and give whatever they had in order to raise the many thousands of dollars that it costs to send a body back to the islands of Micronesia for a proper burial. And I tell you all of this to let you know that even though Acts 4 is 2,000 years in the past, the same spirit of generosity is not that far off for us. Sometimes we just need to be invited to see it for ourselves. Earlier in Luke's writings, he recounts a parable that Jesus told. This comes from the Gospel of Luke chapter 12. And then he said to them, Jesus this is, Jesus said, take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, what should I do, for I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and I will build larger ones. And there I will store all of my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And so it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich towards God. Now, I have experienced this congregation to be a very generous one. And this sermon is not a product of some lack of generosity that I have perceived amongst you. This is not a sermon that is 
meant to call you and shame you for being smart with money and for taking care of yourself and your family. In fact, that's not what Jesus' parable is about either. Jesus' main character isn't in trouble for being wealthy. Jesus' main character is in trouble because his motivation for acquiring and using his wealth was selfish. And this sermon is simply a reminder that what we have is not really ours to begin with. It's all a gift to us, and we are invited to live lives of radical, radical generosity in whatever way that honors God and builds God's kingdom. And so, if you're visiting with us today, just take that lesson with you and, like, turn your ears off for a few minutes. Like, take out your phone, look up where you're going to go eat lunch or brunch, go on Facebook, like, do whatever, right? But if you aren't visiting, if this is your church home, then you don't get a mental vacation right now, okay? There are two people who embodied radical generosity in the most tangible way here at First United Methodist Church of Fort Pierce. Kathy Kruger gave of herself for her entire life, and she gave it to this church and to the people of God in Fort Pierce and around the world. I get reports from Cuba about Sister Kathy and how deeply loved she still is. Her legacy here is a legacy of generosity. And that generosity is literally built into the bones of this church as her family was largely responsible for the construction of this building that we sit in today. And recently, our friend Dick Lystra retired after many years on staff as our choir director and our organist. Dick's selfless and radical generosity showed in the ways that he gave and saw the underprivileged here in Fort Pierce, and how he refused a salary for all of the years that he spent here. And so because we are here at this point in the book of Acts, and because coincidentally we are in a moment of financial need as a church, I, I've chosen today to officially announce and invite you to generously join our campaign to purchase a new organ which will be dedicated to the memory and legacy of both Kathy and Dick, as well as anyone else whom you would like to honor in your donation. Now, I won't lie and tell you that an organ is cheap, but it is within our financial reach as a community if we come together. And so personally, Lexi and I are giving a one-time gift as well as a recurring gift over 15 months on top of our monthly tithe. The leadership of this church has all pledged to individually give of their own money towards this project. And we are all doing this because we are radically invested in the future of worship here at First Fort Pierce, as well as the potential that this new organ can give us to reach out to our community by opening our space to community and school music groups. 
And we are doing this because we believe that the future of the church is bright. And so I invite you to prayerfully consider giving a one-time and or a monthly gift over the next 15 months over and above your regular tithe in order to make the organ project a reality, in order to make it a project that will memorialize the radical generosity of Kathy and Dick, not just in name, but in practice. A gift that will ensure that the deep love of worship that Kathy and Dick both had continues here in this space for years and generations to come. And so as you go from here today, consider how you could give a gift that could impact hearts in worship for the next generation of Jesus' followers here at First Church. And then get excited for all that God is going to do here in this space through us. Now, if you've been on a little mental vacation, you can come back. Because this sermon isn't just about a new organ. This sermon is about how the generosity in the hearts of Jesus' followers laid the foundation for all that would be and could be accomplished through them and through us for eternity to come. And so I pray that you will go from here today with a desire to give freely of yourself in order to see to the well-being of your neighbors. Because that's the kind of love that Jesus embodied for us. And that's the kind of love that the early church showed us was possible. That's the kind of love that Jesus wishes for us to live out into our world. Amen. <laughs>